Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ever thought about owning a piece of history? Introducing the Newt Gingrich contract with America coin from Legacy Precious Metals. My limited edition silver coin celebrates the historic Republican victory in 1994, marking a turning point in American politics. Give a gift with real historical weight this season. Order now at NewtGingrichSilverCoin.com. That's NewtGingrichSilverCoin.com. Have you heard about the social media platform for kids? It's called Zikazoo. It's a great place where kids like me can come together to make fun videos. Videos moderated by real people who review content before it's posted to the feed. I love the dance challenges. I love that it's Kids Safe COPPA certified. Uh, I don't know what that means. It means it has built-in privacy protections for your online data. Zigazoo, the world's largest social network. For kids. <laughs> Download the Zigazoo app today. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent, and this is Chasing Life. Three out of four U.S. adults are considered overweight or have obesity. 75% of Americans. Dr. Fatima Cody-Stanford. Our weight is one factor that plays a role in our health. But by itself, it doesn't give us the full story of who we are. We have to look at our full person. Listen to Chasing Life, streaming now on the iHeartRadio app. On this episode of Newt's World, I am really pleased to welcome to the program someone I've known for a long time, Brett Baer. Brett is a New York Times bestselling author, award-winning chief political anchor for Fox News Channel, the anchor and executive editor of Special Report with Brett Baer. He's joining me today to discuss his first installment in his new book series, which illuminates the life and legacy of one of America's most consequential yet misunderstood leaders. Ulysses S. Grant, whose actions both as general and as president played an unparalleled role in preserving the United States. Brett's new book, To Rescue the Republic, Ulysses S. Grant, The Fragile Union and the Crisis of 1876, is a significant contribution to understanding the historical record. And I am really pleased to welcome Brett Baer as my guest. Thank you for joining me. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me, Mr. Speaker. Let's start at the beginning. I mean, you have so many different things you've written about Eisenhower, Reagan, FDR. What led you to Grant and what intrigued you about him or the time period? Well, you know, the last series of books was a three days series at the beginning, middle and end of the Cold War. And I tried to focus on some of the things that I thought were overlooked or not focused on in history. For Eisenhower was the transition to Kennedy and his farewell address and his presidency. For Reagan, it was the final summit with Gorbachev and a speech that he gives to Moscow State University students that was largely overlooked. And for FDR, Churchill, and Stalin, it was the Tehran conference that was kind of overshadowed by Yalta, but it's the place that they make 
D-Day plans. So I was looking for that other moment in history that may have been overlooked. And I think Grant's presidency is that. If you talk about Grant's presidency, if anybody knows anything about it at all, it's often painted with a broad brush that there's petty corruption and scandals, that he is somehow a drunk the entire time, and that it leads to the end of Reconstruction, which has devastating consequences down the road. And I think that that needed to get another look. And as I dug into it, Newt, I really found that it was a consequential presidency. It was a presidency where, yes, there was some corruption that he trusted people that took advantage of him. But for him, the whole thing was keeping the union together and winning the peace, in particular, making sure the process of reconstruction in the South was successful. The 14th, 15th Amendments are pushed through. He fights the KKK with federal troops. And he really does hold the Union together. And the climax of the book is the 1876 contested election, where he makes a grand bargain to make it all hold together. You know, I think one of the things you pick up on that people often misunderstand is that the struggle doesn't end at Appomattox. It doesn't end when the overt war ends, there's still an enormous effort that threatens the whole survival of the Union, and in which a substantial number of white Southerners are engaged in both trying to repress African Americans, but also trying to resist the federal government. And Grant, through all this process, is a Union man. I mean, he's deeply, deeply committed to the Union. What do you think drove him to such a deep understanding of the centrality of the American system to the whole cause of freedom and of individual opportunity. He was not that way at the beginning, and I think he came to it over time and believed that he was taking Lincoln's torch of that vision that Lincoln had of bringing the country together. And then seeing when Lincoln is assassinated and Johnson takes over, you know, arguably one of our worst presidents, if not the worst, in taking the country backwards. And I think Grant is somehow empowered with the idea that he needs to get the country back on track, needs to get the focus back on unity and making sure blacks are incorporated into society. I mean, when he is in that eight years, you have blacks in Congress, in the U.S. Senate, you have them owning property and making livings as citizens. And after his presidency, it would take 92 years for the next African-American to be in the U.S. Senate. It's pretty remarkable. What you have here is somebody who had gone to West Point, had been a soldier, served in the Mexican War, then gets out and is actually you know, working as a shopkeeper when the Civil War starts. My sense is that there was almost no way to imagine this guy in 1861 becoming Grant, as he did, first as general who wins in the West and then defeats Lee in the East, and then second, coming back as a guy who really, as you point out, he picks up Lincoln's banner at a point where things were really a mess and where Lincoln's choice for vice president, Johnson of Tennessee, had turned out to be really much more pro-secessionist and much less willing to impose the values of the United States on people who were still psychologically, if not physically, in rebellion. 
As you got to know Grant, didn't you find him to be a remarkable personality? Remarkable. I mean, from his beginnings, which were humble, he does not want to be a soldier. His father says, you're going to West Point. He kind of goes kicking and screaming. And, you know, when he goes to West Point, he's told that the appointment is under the name Ulysses S. Grant, and his name is Hiram Ulysses Grant. And so he becomes Ulysses S. Grant. The S doesn't stand for anything. And he finds out he's an average student, but a really good horseman and a great soldier. He finds that out in the Mexican-American War, is very admirably thought of as a soldier there and does some heroic things. And then his life kind of takes a turn. He goes out west to the Northwest Territory. He does start drinking. He's a small, slight guy, and he doesn't handle his liquor well. The commander busts him and says, you're going to either resign your post or get court-martialed. He decides to resign, goes back to Galena, Illinois, and to your point, he starts this spiral. He's not good at farming. He's not good at business. He ends up selling firewood to make ends meet, and three years from that, he would be the general in charge of the Union Army. I think what Lincoln saw in Grant was someone who was humble, patient, kind of internal leader, but also unshakable. And once he starts winning these battles, it becomes evident that he is almost a military savant in the way that he can look at a battlefield. Sherman talks about it a lot, about how he's just blown away. And then that popularity in that moment launches him to become, obviously, the 18th president of the United States. You know, I think in that sense that there's an odd kind of inevitability once he has become Grant. It's easy for us to forget that the Civil War involved more deaths than every other American war up through Vietnam combined, and that for a country that size, it was an extraordinarily painful, searing moment. And the two people who were most responsible for Northern victory are Lincoln and Grant. And when Lincoln is killed, Grant is sort of standing in isolation, watching President Johnson, and I think you're probably right. Either Johnson or Buchanan's the worst president in American history, and Johnson probably more so than Buchanan, because he's trying to throw away the victory that the North had won so painfully. And here's Grant, who was the symbol of the victory. And it's interesting that he doesn't exactly run for president. Describe that for a second, because it's so classically Grant-like how he ends up in the White House. Well, he has never wanted to be in political office. He says to all his friends that the only office that I really wanted to ever run for was mayor of Galena so that I could build a sidewalk from my house to the depot. And his great story when he finishes as union general and is coming back and they throw him a big parade in Galena and he's going down the road and there's a huge sign that says, general, the sidewalk is finished. He didn't really have any aspirations to be president. But he does find some standing up to Johnson that he really feels is important and makes some stands on principle, standing up to a couple of things that Johnson wants to do. And Johnson wants to get rid of him out of the picture and wants to send him to Mexico at one point on a diplomatic mission. And Grant fights it and says, you know, if you're going to give me a military order, I'll go. But this is civilian, and I'm not doing it. And it was pretty stunning, that cabinet meeting, to say that. 
he's recruited to be president and he doesn't even vote for himself. He's kind of run in and it is a landslide by far because he's the most popular figure of the time. And to your point, fast forward when he dies, you know, at his funeral, a million people line the streets of New York City and they bring out their old uniforms, Union and Confederate. And the pallbearers of his funeral are two Union generals and two Confederate generals. So he had this ability to be victorious in the North, but magnanimous in the South, even though he was the defeating general. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I've always been a strong believer in the importance of investing wisely. That's why I've personally invested in Legacy Precious Metals. At Legacy Precious Metals, they're not leaving your financial future to chance. They're on a mission to help you secure your financial future post-retirement. In partnership with them, I'm thrilled to announce the launch of the Newt Gingrich contract with America Coin. This limited edition coin is made of one ounce of 99.99% fine silver, commemorating the historic moment when, against all odds, we balanced the budget for the last time in U.S. history. This coin isn't just an investment. It's a piece of our nation's history. And now you can own it. As the holiday season approaches, it's the perfect gift. You can purchase yours today by calling 866-484-4043. That's 866-484-4043. Or order online at NewtGingrichSilverCoin.com. That's NewtGingrichSilverCoin.com. As someone who lives for politics, when a major scandal unfolds... It was shocking. I have to know, what were they thinking? Backroom deals. Huge amounts of money. CIA secrets. Sets off a firestorm in Washington. Affairs. No way this guy's got a mistress. Corruption. I knew I was a dead man. Warning, it's even messier than you thought. United States of Scandal with Jake Tapper, Sunday at 9 on CNN. Billie Eilish and Phineas O'Connell, they're with us today on Crew Call. I'm your host, Anthony D'Alessandro. Billy's vocals, it was automatic art. You know, I had to like choose a more challenging route than just like da 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 da. You know what I'm saying? Like it could have been like easier. And a lot of people have asked me like, how did you choose to have it be so soft and like so simple? And what else was it going to like? That's what the song wanted. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Crew Call podcast on Deadline. And it's interesting, you pointed out some things candidly I did not know, although I knew a pretty good bit about Grant as general, but I, like most Americans, I hadn't paid much attention to Grant as president. And one of the things that comes through in your book that I think is fascinating is Grant is actively pursuing protecting black rights in the South. As you point out that on April 20th, 1871, he signs quote, an act to enforce the provisions of the 14th Amendment 
which is also known as the Ku Klux Klan Act. So here is a guy who is willing to use the army of the United States to protect the rights of African Americans and to impose change in a region particularly like South Carolina or parts of Tennessee, where there's really very active, hostile, and at times very violent opposition. Even though the war was over, the skirmishing wasn't over. Did that surprise you how much continuing opposition there was in that period? Yeah. I mean, basically, Johnson, I think, gave the green light to some of those Confederate holdouts that this was their time. And so there was a rising up, a bubbling up of, you know, we say it's the KKK, but in reality, it's this white militia that of former Confederate soldiers who believed that this was their time to stand up and try again, if you will. When Grant signs that act, he does it because in the 14th Amendment is getting undermined. It's getting undermined by the South not paying attention to it, number one, and by the Supreme Court, frankly, undermining it a number of different ways. So it is a battle, a constant battle. And you can't get your head around it now that it is the Republican Party, and there are things called radical Republicans at the time, who are really, really fighting for black rights and the success of the black community. You point out, and this really was a fascinating surprise to me, that on March 1st, 1875, they enact the Civil Rights Act, which actually prohibited racial discrimination in public places and facilities, something we won't revisit basically for almost another 90 years. Which is just shocking if you think about that. I mean, here is this act which essentially gets unwound and undermined in a series of different motions, but Grant is pushing for that very thing that it'll take Lyndon Johnson to do later. The contest of 1876, which is pretty complicated, but it also has a kind of bittersweet component to it in that, in a sense, the Union was saved unless you were African-American. And I think in that sense, it was a fairly corrupt bargain. But at the same time, the alternative may have been a civil war. First of all, just for the average person, including me, can you walk through how they stumbled into this mess and what had happened as a practical matter so that they're, particularly given what we just lived through in the last few months, I mean, they really did have a problem in terms of how they were going to get the Electoral College to work. And also, the book starts on January 6th as I'm covering that, and it does give you a perspective on where we've been before as a country so that we can kind of get a perspective that we can get through the things that we are dealing with now. In 1876, Rutherford B. Hayes is the Republican, Samuel Tilden is the Democrat, and it's a very close election, but there are three states that are sending up two sets of electors, Florida, Louisiana, and South Carolina. They cannot come to a conclusion. They send up two sets, one for Rutherford B. Hayes, one for Samuel Tilden. The election is in doubt. It's tied, essentially. You had one way Hayes wins, the other way Tilden wins, and it is on pause, locked down for weeks. And during that time, violence starts bubbling up in different cities in the South, as well as threats on the Capitol. And Grant is trying to figure out how he can get involved and act without putting his finger on the scale. Obviously, he would prefer that Rutherford B. Hayes be the winner as a fellow Republican, but he knows that the most important thing is that it be transparent and legitimate, that 
Congress and that the country believe that the winner is the winner. So he tries to structure this electoral commission, and it takes him a long time to get Congress to do it. But the commission is set up with five House members, three Republicans and two Democrats, five Senate members, three Democrats and two Republicans, and five Supreme Court justices split up by who appointed them and one who is supposed to be neutral. And Justice Bradley fell into that role. They still can't get to a conclusion. And finally, you talk about smoke-filled rooms in the back of Washington that solve things. At the Wormley Hotel, there is this get-together led by this shadowy figure, Edward Burke, who is a Louisianan, who is working for the Democrat challenger in the Louisiana governor's race. And essentially, they come up with this deal that the Democrats would win the state houses where they're contested as well in Louisiana and South Carolina, and federal troops would be pulled out of the South. Autonomy would be essentially given to the southern states. However, the South would agree to uphold equality for blacks and black communities and sign on to protecting southern blacks. So Grant feels that, yes, it's dangerous. Yes, it's tough. But he thinks that Reconstruction has run its course because it's getting pushed back from the South so much and the North even that this promise is something that he agrees to. Now, if Ronald Reagan was there in 1876, he would say, trust but verify. But the promise didn't work. And the South doesn't live up to its promise of equality for blacks and across the board. And I think Grant, in his writing, suggests that he hoped that the next presidents would take the baton that he did, the Lincoln vision, and they didn't. And so that leads to a lot. It leads to eventually the Jim Crow laws and civil rights atrocities. And I think a lot of that in history then falls back to Grant. And maybe that's why his presidency is so overlooked. Now, part of that is also, I noticed that as you were writing it, that the Democrat governor of New York, Samuel Tilden, actually comes across as a pretty honorable guy. That there's a point where there's a real effort, particularly in South Carolina, to bribe the outcome. And he says, no. What do you think motivated Tilden? I think he too felt like the country was tipping back to a civil war. And his inclination and everything that we dug up was not to fight, but to negotiate. And, you know, arguably Tilden really won. There's all kinds of back and forth about who pressured who and what kind of efforts were made to stop the vote, especially for blacks in the South at that time. But Tilden is seen as this figure who is willing to fall on his sword for the betterment of the country. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a very important part of this. You had particularly a group of Northern Democrats who really were committed to the preservation of the Union, even if it wasn't quite what they wanted, and even at the cost of personal ambition. And then Hayes, I could never quite decide whether it was a function of exhaustion, that the country had just you know, they'd been at this now since the mid-1850s when you began to get bloody Kansas and you began to get violence on a sporadic basis and then, of course, a huge civil war. And so to some extent, I just wondered, 
if the country hadn't kind of burned out on the ability to impose its will. That's probably true. Hayes is seen as kind of slow walking a lot of things, and he eventually does get to the things that they agree to. But I think that's a great way to put it. There was exhaustion from the Civil War. There was exhaustion from the 1876 violence that came from the election. And they really wanted just a calm period, which in the short term was a bad thing for blacks. I read the memoir of Grant's personal assistant during the war, just as an example of how different the world was. He cites Grant leaving Appomattox, having received Lee's surrender, getting on the train to go back to Washington. And while they're riding the train that afternoon, Grant is signing orders to disband the Union Army on the grounds that the taxpayers should not have to pay for the troops for one day longer than necessary. You look at that model and you look at how we operate today, Grant was really in a different world than ours. He really was. And you know, that military aide, Adam Badeau, wrote that Grant knew, you know, poverty and failure, and he learned patience, and he also learned that you had to get things done and solve things, and that he was a problem solver. He had this ability to not only be unshakable and have this cold resolve, unconditional surrender was his nickname, and other presidents took that. FDR used that in negotiating with Churchill, saying that that's where they needed to be, pointing back to Grant. So there are a lot of things that come from Grant as general, not as many that come from Grant as president. As you went through your research and really gave yourself a chance to be surrounded by Grant, did you find that in addition to respecting him, that you actually kind of liked him more than you thought you would? A hundred percent, Newt. I really did. In this process, I got to know him a lot better. And I read the turnout book. I read everything about Grant, but I did not feel sort of the personal aspect to it. And over time, I did. And, you know, he's really good friends with Mark Twain. And at the end of his life, as you know the story, he loses all of his money. And in a, another thing that he's trusting people and he invests and loses all his money and he starts to write his Civil War recollections for a magazine. Mark Twain says, how much are they paying you? And he says $500. And he gets livid, Twain does, because he's not making enough money for this gold. Grant is an amazing writer, so good that people thought Twain was writing it, but he says he barely edited it. So he starts writing his memoir. He gets the throat cancer to the point where he can barely get through the day. They spray cocaine in the back of his throat so he can swallow He's in blankets, and he's writing because he knows this deadline is coming, and he wants to provide for Julia and his family. And he finishes the memoir longhand and then dies a few days later. I actually think it's probably the best single book on the Civil War. A historian who had studied leadership said that the amazing thing about Grant is the clarity of his orders, that he could write in very few words exactly what he wanted you to do, you thoroughly understood it. And it's a little hard to know where that came from. I mean, he doesn't do all that well academically at West Point. He's, you know, hanging out there, combating a little bit of an alcohol problem. He's running a store. As you point out, he ends up selling firewood. And all of a sudden, he turns around, and this capacity to lead and this capacity to write 
just blossom in a matter of probably five or six months. It's amazing. It really is amazing. I think, you know, some of it comes from his time as a soldier in the Mexican-American War. He's under Zachary Taylor and Winfield Scott and others. Robert E. Lee is down in the Mexican-American War. I do think that there's this mutual respect from the people who serve with him that suddenly they have this sense that he's just an internal leader and it exudes from him, even though he looks, you know, kind of shabby, he's small, he wears shabby uniforms. The great story is when Lincoln calls him up to get his fourth star for commanding Union forces, he gets called to the hotel, the Willard, next to the White House, which is very fancy, and he walks in again in a shabby uniform with his son Fred, and he comes up to the clerk, and the clerk looks at him and says, we do not have rooms for you. And they said, well, maybe we have a small closet-like room up on the top floor. And Grant, being unpretentious and self-effacing, says, well, that's fine. I'm fine with that. Turns to his son, and he signs the register, U.S. Grant and Son, Galena, Illinois. And the clerk looks at it and turns white and goes and gets the hotel manager, and then they are escorted to the bridal suite as the general who is known so well. You have a similar portrait, I guess, a year earlier. The first time he actually comes to the White House, he wanders into this reception that Lincoln is hosting, and he's so small that he doesn't stand out at all. I mean, people have no idea who he is. And here's this guy, and he always tended to wear a private's blouse, which I think was partly his way of representing the common man and the sense of the Union Army as a force of citizens. He's kind of standing in this little room, being quiet, unannounced, and Lincoln finally spots him. But so you have this gigantically tall president for that era and this really short little guy who's the guy winning the war. It's just a great scene. Yeah, he didn't meet the image that everybody thought of this winning victorious general to the point where an artist, a photographer, literally chopped off the top of his head and put it on a more stately sitting general on a horse so it was like the first Photoshop of Civil War because they felt like the papers needed to have a better image of the general winning. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I've always been a strong believer in the importance of investing wisely. That's why I've personally invested in Legacy Precious Metals. At Legacy Precious Metals, they're not leaving your financial future to chance. They're on a mission to help you secure your financial future post-retirement. In partnership with them, I'm thrilled to announce the launch of the Newt Gingrich contract with America Coin. This limited edition coin is made of one ounce of 99.99% fine silver, commemorating the historic moment when, against all odds, we balanced the budget for the last time in U.S. history. This coin isn't just an investment. It's a piece of our nation's history. And now you can own it. As the holiday season approaches, it's the perfect gift. You can purchase yours today by calling 866-484-4043. That's 866-484-4043. 
or order online at NewtGingrichSilverCoin.com. That's NewtGingrichSilverCoin.com. CNN Underscore's Guide to Sleep has tons of recommendations for products that can help you get the best night's sleep ever. All right, let's face it. Most of us have had trouble falling or staying asleep at some point. And there are a lot of products and hacks claiming to be the solution to our sleepless nights. That's why the CNN Underscored team spend hundreds of hours testing products to find the ones that can make a huge difference in the quality of your slumber. Visit Underscored.com now for our ultimate guide to getting better sleep. Welcome to the Scene to Scene podcast. I am your host, Valerie Complex. Today, I am chatting with Ji Young Yu. Ji Young stars as co-lead in the six-part limited series, Expats. I think I learn a little bit with every character that I play. I think usually I play a character and it causes enough introspection that I learn something about myself. I honestly can't gush enough about Freaky Tales. I'm so excited to share it with more people. If you like what you hear, be sure to review, like, and subscribe to the Scene to Scene podcast. There are two moments that I was really struck with in studying Grant many years ago. One is he's come back, he's in the Army now because he had Congressman Washburn, who was very close to Lincoln, has sponsored Grant and said, look, give him a command, let's see what he can do. So he has his first regiment. He trains them, and they're going to go down the river on a steamboat, and they're going to take an embankment that the Confederates are entrenched on. And in his memoir, Grant writes, you know, I lay awake all night. I was really worried. I didn't know if my troops would run. I didn't know if they would actually stay and fight. I didn't know what the Confederates were up to. So they go down the river in the morning. They arrive at the site. They get off the boat. And all of the rifle pits are empty because the Confederate, during the night, decided to leave. And Grant writes something which I remember in my entire career. He said, I suddenly realized the other guy was scared too. (laughs) He said, for the rest of the war, when we get into a really tough fight, I'd stop and remember, oh yeah, however tired we are, they're tired too. And you get this kind of uh, phlegmatic capacity on his part. And then the other thing, which I used to tell our people about when we were trying to become a majority, I would walk down the mall with them, come back up, and we'd always end at Grant's statue looking out towards Lee's family home. And I'd talk about what the war had meant and all that. And the fact that at Shiloh Landing, in the first really big fight, the Confederates have surprised the Union Army, Grant's forces, and had driven them back to the river where they're sheltering under the gunboats. And Sherman writes in his memoir that up until then, the Union Army would get a bloody nose and pull back. And so he walked over to where Grant's tent was. It was the drizzling rain. The tent had been taken over as a field hospital to amputate limbs. Grant's sitting under a tree on a little canvas tripod seat, whittling. And Sherman walks up, thinking he's going to say, I guess we're going to pull back tomorrow. And he says to Grant, they whipped us pretty good today. And Grant, without even looking up, still sitting there whittling, goes, yeah, lick him in the morning, though. And Sherman writes, at that moment, I decided I wouldn't recommend withdrawal. I think it's the most important single conversation in the Civil War because they talk about the fact that the South isn't going to quit, that the South's serious, and that, in fact, they have to assume that they will have to destroy the South's capacity to wage war in order to win because the South will never negotiate the end of the war. 
And from that comes the entire strategy that ultimately with Lincoln's strong support, I think Lincoln's the greatest strategist in the war. And I think both Grant and Sherman felt that way. But the three of them suddenly, they now have a model. They know what they're going to do, and they set out to do it. And the calmness of Grant, unlike Sherman, who's very up and down, but Grant, under almost every circumstance, is really calm. And it's part of the characteristic that he had somehow acquired. And it may have been by having to go through the process of giving up alcohol and disciplining yourself that he became this kind of person. Yeah. And, you know, that patience, that calm, that resolve. And then he is really considered in the South respected. You know, he's meeting this former Confederate soldier who had fought troops at Fort Donelson and Champion Hill. And Grant says to him, I honor all Confederate soldiers and they're all brave and conscientious men. You're not the fault here, basically. Your leaders were. They knew that the Southern Confederacy was impossible and ought, ought not to be. And I was fighting, he, he tells them, not against the South, but for it in every battle. And I felt sympathy for you. I was fighting for the North and the South. And so his writings suggest, and those meetings with Confederates, suggest that his motivation, even back then, was keeping the Union together and winning the peace. And I think that that comes out in all of his actions. That is the driving force behind what he's doing. Well, and what you've done in your book, To Rescue the Republic, is, I think, recentered Grant as a person who had a much deeper strategic vision of how do we sustain the union and how do we get people to decide that they want to be Americans at a point where there was still enormous bitterness and there was still a tremendous frustration and the potential for the whole thing to just break down again. And I'm not sure, in the absence of a Lincoln I'm not sure that the North would have had the energy and the courage to try to militarily impose on the South. I think that maintaining this relative peace and getting most Southerners committed back to the Union was extraordinarily important. And to the best of my knowledge, I think you've written the only book that really captures the Grant presidency in the context of the struggle the country was going through with itself. Your subtitle, Ulysses S. Grant, The Fragile Union and the Crisis of 1876, really captures, here's a thing that could still have broken down. And that Grant is very aware that he both has to keep it together and not push so hard that it will collapse. I think it's a very serious and significant contribution, both to understanding Grant, but also to understanding American history in a way that very few people have written. Oh, I appreciate that. Thank you very much. I mean, it's been a labor of love. And I think that my takeaway from the whole thing is that, you know, to keep our republic, even today, requires constant vigilance. You know, freedoms aren't automatically given. They have to be pursued and won repeatedly. And each new election is kind of that symbol of of our faith in ourselves as a nation. And that's what Grant is driving at. That's what I take away from his actions. And I think it's a little fun to say, what would Grant think today? What would Lincoln think today? I think the country would be very different if Grant had gone to Ford Theater, as he was invited to by the Lincolns. He had a lot of guilt about not being there. He thinks he could have 
stopped Booth or done something. He was likely a target too, and we talk about that in the book as well. But if it's not Lincoln-Johnson, and if it's Lincoln and another term of Lincoln and then a grant, think about where the country is. I mean, it's a much different, different place. That's right. And we've been very dark places in our country's history, so it helps to give perspective for today. I can't let you go without asking, given the quality of the work you do. And when I think about you every night putting together a special report and still finding a way to do all this research and to write as well as you do. So I just have to ask if you can say it, what comes next? So first of all, let me give credit to a team that I've worked with for four books now. And I have a researcher who I found in the first book. She is a former mayor of Salina, Kansas. That is the little town next to Abilene. And I went to look at Eisenhower and start writing about that. And they said, well, this is Sidney Soderbergh. She's the one. And she finds these nuggets that hadn't been discovered before. I met her, Mr. Speaker, and I said, I'd love to you know, hire you for this book. And she said, I watch your show. And I said, that's great. Thank you. And she said, I like your show. And I said, that's even better. And she said, but I need you to know that I am a true blue Kansas Democrat. And I said, that's great. I'm a newsman and I'm really into history. So this is going to work great. So we started that relationship. Co-author Catherine Whitney and I work really well together and we bounce back and forth. And we put these nuggets that Sydney finds in this kind of quilt and then stitch it together. I work at night, a couple hours a night to do it. We are in the process. Sydney has been deployed. And I think we're going to go backwards to rescue the Constitution. We're in the process of digging those nuggets now, which is just a lot of fun. A lot of fun. We're certainly going to have the link on our show page so that they can purchase the current nugget to rescue the Republic. But I also want to extend to you an invitation that when the next book comes out, we'd love to have this kind of conversation again and share with our audience the kind of things you do, which I think are remarkable and particularly remarkable given the burden you carry and the weight you have with Special Report, which is really a remarkable show and one which in a very calm and methodical way brings the news every single day. So you're obviously quite busy. I am busy, but it's a lot of fun and it's been great. My wife says probably the next book, we're going to take a break after that one. (laughs) But we'll see. You know Amy. I mean, she runs the show. She can be pretty persuasive. She and Calista both have this knack of somehow getting our attention despite ourselves. That's right. Exactly. Brett, thank you so much for being here today. And I really look forward to your next work. Thanks, Newt. I really appreciate it. Thank you to my guest, Brett Bayer. You can get a link to buy his new book, To Rescue the Republic, Ulysses S. Grant, The Fragile Union and the Crisis of 1876, on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newtsworld is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Debbie Myers. Our producer is Garnsey Sloan, and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Pendley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at Gingrich360.com slash newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. 
Ever thought about owning a piece of history? Introducing the Newt Gingrich Contract with America coin from Legacy Precious Metals. My limited edition silver coin celebrates the historic Republican victory in 1994, marking a turning point in American politics. Give a gift with real historical weight this season. Order now at NewtGingrichSilverCoin.com. That's NewtGingrichSilverCoin.com. Hey, Sarah, I love that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was so cool. I think you're so talented. Social media is only positive with Zigazoo, the world's largest and safest social media network for kids. In Zigazoo, all community members are verified kids like yours, and all content is fully human-moderated. Try out Zigazoo this spring break. Download the Zigazoo app today. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Martha Stewart, the original influencer. When I think about anything, I think about the way that she did it first. The media mogul. The six years ahead, she saw what was coming. The prisoner, the rise, the fall, and the reinvention of an American icon. Once Martha paved the road, everybody else pretty much copied her. A CNN original series, The Many Lives of Martha Stewart, now streaming on Max. 